0: And the perspective of Bitcoin to me is the next level, and I like to let my work speak for itself. So being African American in this space is interesting because you have to look at it from the perspective of like echo chambers or what you usually see when people are talking about technology, finance, business,
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Foster Inclusion Podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm your host, Saida Gomez-Flurry. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking to Daodu about writing and expression in Bitcoin. Daudu is a writer, editor, and podcaster in the Bitcoin space, and his work has been published in Bitcoin Magazine and Satoshi's Journal. He's the voice of the Bitcoin Source Podcast on YouTube and the author of not one, not two, but three books called The Bit on Digital Coins, Cover Me in Gold, and Death of a Rose. Hello, Daudu. How are you? I'm
0: doing well. How are you doing?
1: I'm okay. I'm okay. We're going through a heat wave right now. Uh, so many things on the go, like home renovations. My daughter's daycare is ending and stuff, so we have to like plan a mini vacation and stuff, but all good.
0: Okay, good. I know there's like a heat wave in Europe, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Big time. Big time, which is funny because uh, there's so much talk about... Uh, Europe's energy concerns and how things will be in the winter and we're having this discussion right now in the summer during a heat wave.
0: I yeah, know it's crazy.
1: Yeah totally totally. So um, can you introduce yourself?
0: Yes most definitely. Hi everyone welcome you know thank you to the audience. My name is Daru M. M. Montana, senior editor, lead writer at Satoshi's Journal, the host of the Bitcoin Source, entrepreneur, Author, podcaster, the whole lot. I'm um, glad and grateful to be here on Foster Inclusion.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, with uh, through our interactions with Satoshi's journal, um, I'm learning that we have a lot of things in common. Uh, the yeah. episode that we recorded previously, I can't wait until it comes out so that people can, I guess, get insight into our like nerdiness, especially at. As kids with uh, books and the library and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when did you, I guess, kind of realize that uh, Bitcoin could help empower people who have been historically marginalized?
0: Uh, you know, honestly, I came to the realization when I joined the Black Bitcoin Billionaires um, I understood Bitcoin before BBB, but I realized it would do something magnificent, but I really didn't realize, and I didn't really understand, like, not seeing people that look like me in the space.
1: Yeah. So at
0: that, you know what I mean? So at that point, like, I I knew it was empowering, but I didn't know how to be empowered because I need, you know, representation matters, right? So I used to sit in rooms and listen to Lamar Wilson, Najah Roberts, And hearing them speak about Bitcoin and how Bitcoin has changed people's lives was what really started to empower me. Um, The fact that the supply can't be manipulated, um, it allows you to kind of like focus on three things, right? What is money? What is the problem? And what is the solution? So I learned about a lot of these issues inside of those rooms on Clubhouse, having conversations with people and That's when I started to come to the realization of like sound money and this being something that disenfranchised and underserved communities can use as a tool, because like a lot of people use or try to say Bitcoin is like going to fix every single thing that goes on in our society. And I don't think that that's true. I think it's just a tool on your tool belt that you can use to better yourself and better your community.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's um, I didn't have the opportunity to participate in too many clubhouse rooms um, and specifically Black Bitcoin billionaires. But I remember, I think it was in 2021, I went in and I heard an older lady. She had a Caribbean accent, which like Mm -hmm. totally resonated with me. And I think she stated her age, like she was like 65 or something. And she called Satoshis like Sakokis or something like that. But she was so determined to learn about bitcoin and she didn't speak about herself personally she really spoke about her grandkids and i i thought that that was super powerful
0: um did you did she did she ever mention her name because it sounds like it could be like granny crypto or something but uh granny cryptos she has her own room and stuff she's an older woman and i don't know she's from the caribbean now
1: okay i'm gonna check her out granny crypto does she have a twitter handle that you know of or you can tell yeah. me later if... Uh, yeah,
0: I don't have it all pinned, but I can, I can send it to you.
1: I'm totally going to look her up. Um, so we were talking before and stuff about like just, I guess, different contexts uh, with respect to Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And you are one of the few writers of African descent in the American Bitcoin context. What is that experience like?
0: You know, that's a really, really good question. And, you know, I think that, you know, Bitcoin transcends race, religion, language, all of these things. And when I think about Bitcoin, I really think about how do I make an impact as a writer? Right? Yeah. So I guess you could say I'm unique in a sense, but like, I'm not like the poster child for African-American writers in the space. But there are so many writers doing great things that look like me and come from my culture, like Charlene Federico, Isaiah Jackson, Ulrich yeah. Thiel, you know, just to name a few, right? So the experience for me is unique because I'm very forward thinking when it comes to writing. And the perspective of Bitcoin to me is the next level. And I like to let my work speak for itself. So being African-American in this space is Interesting because you have to look at it from the perspective of like echo chambers or what you usually see when people are talking about technology, finance, business. You're usually getting that from like white men or people that have generational wealth that feel more comfortable talking about um, paradigm shifting or, um, you know, things that allow people to be wealthy beyond their present time state, right? So, what I was always like motivated by and kind of like interested in is that when you look at like one of my favorite writers is Tahanisi Coates. Yeah. He, he had like a crazy run at the Atlantic, which was a publication. And a lot of his topics were talking around social issues, political issues that African Americans deal with typically in like American society. I started looking at Bitcoin. I started looking at How can this be a tool to change people from my community? And how can I write about these things to make them relevant? So Mm -hmm. that's kind of like been the inspiration for me. Like I kind of took that coach model and I tried to write like short op-edged or short articles to kind of make me stand out in the space. And it's been going great ever since.
1: Yeah, it it has been like you're you pop on Twitter. (laughs) I saw a few of your tweets and I was like, wow, I know him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so what are some of the, or what would you say are some of the key issues you've observed that are specific to the African American community in the U S
0: yeah, most definitely. I think that like, first of all, I say like the first thing would probably be like education, education is key because when you're dealing with a huge complex technology, such as Bitcoin, It's not like you can just wake up and fully understand this. Like they always say, like you need at least 100 hours of research before you can really understand this technology. And I think that access to information and education are huge. And those are kind of things in our community that we need to actually foster and work on because there's millions of people out there and there's a lot of people out there that are going through the Bitcoin process and they're getting access to this information. They're able to attend MIT and take a course. They're able to talk to, you know, people in their community that have already been orange pilled and have a better understanding of the protocol. Like how many software engineers do you know, you know, coming from our community, there are a lot, but a lot of them are working on databases coding. They're not doing Bitcoin core. You know what I mean? So Those are things that are very important. And I think that for our community, we have so much vacillation. We have so much confusion in the space. There's a lot of altcoin talk. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of like get rich quick schemes and there's a lot of snake oil out there like snake oil salesmen. So I think the biggest thing for us is that we need to just kind of foster an understanding of that Bitcoin is the de facto monetary system out there and once we realize that, how do we find a way to optimize understanding it and utilizing it for our benefit?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I know of, uh, well, for me, I've noticed that, um, I guess because, you know, I grew up in a context where most of my um, schoolmates and therefore friends were white. I was in a French immersion program uh, and then I've traveled a lot. I've got friends from like different backgrounds, be it language, uh, linguistic, religious, like nationality, everything. And I've noticed that consistently uh, folks who are relatively new to the idea of Bitcoin or crypto, as they commonly say, seem to fall prey pretty easily to like NFTs, you know, like I'll I'll engage in a discussion with someone and then I'll get like a message saying, oh, but what about this NFT? And I'm like, no. (laughs) No, 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 no. So I start like I've kind of started thinking of things like basic questions to ask off the bat, uh, to know whether a project is sound. So like you mentioned earlier, a fixed supply. What is the inflation schedule of this coin? How can the can the supply be altered and how can it be altered? I find that that is like one way to sort of like keep them thinking about Bitcoin and or keep them focused on Bitcoin, as opposed to being distracted by some of these other projects that are floating around in the space.
0: hundred percent. And, um, you know, to that point there, you know, it's just like the traditional finance market, right? You have Apple, you have Coca-Cola stock, you have Amazon stock, and you have to do your own research. You have to do your own kind yeah. of SOPs and looking at like all the balance sheets of these companies and seeing like, is it worth your time and investment? Yeah. But the good thing about Bitcoin is, is that you, you know, there's no CEO, there's no overlord of Bitcoin. So it's like, once you understand it, there's a fixed supply and there's absolute scarcity if you know anything about economic supply and demand, you're going to realize that um, anything that's scarce is always going to go up in value.
1: Yep, yep. The inelastic supply makes it so that, you know, no matter, and I think this speaks a lot to uh, the power structures that I personally believe have created this social hierarchy where based on like physical appearances as opposed to, Intellect. And then that bleeds into so many other things like um, your environment, uh, some of the resources, educational resources you have access to. And I find that um, in addition to Bitcoin itself, my learning journey has really helped me to understand the power of the internet. Even though Clubhouse or Twitter are centralized platforms, I find that there's so much more information available through these platforms that I do have to verify, but still like different uh, frameworks and ways of seeing things are available that I can then go on and research further. Have you noticed um, that, uh, for example, like the sources that you use for your writing have changed over time with your exposure to, I guess, different perspectives on Bitcoin and on technology in general?
0: Yeah, 100%. I think that, like, when I first started writing about Bitcoin, I was doing um, a lot more referencing from, like, safe being from, you know what I mean? Like, kind of like the Bitcoin standard is kind of how I came in learning on that book. And that book was like very important for my journey as a, as a Bitcoiner. And I feel like as I started writing more about it and learning more about it, it became kind of ubiquitous in the sense of not saying I didn't have to reference things, but just going through the experience of being more in tune with the technology, I could just write about it verbatim and it just made more sense to people. People trusted what I had to say. And it's all about trust. It's all about trust.
1: Yeah. When we're, yeah. When we're listening to podcasters or when we're reading the works of, of writers earlier, you mentioned that um, Tanahisi Coates is one of your inspirations. Have you ever reached out to him or tried to sort of like plant a Bitcoin seed in his mind?
0: You know, what's interesting about Coates is, is that he's not really big on social media. Like, I remember mm. seeing an, an interview with him where he said that um, he didn't like Twitter as much because him as a writer, um, when you tweet something, it's so final. Him being a oh, writer, yeah. he likes to kind of like modify what he says or his ideas or his thoughts might change. He might tweet something that might seem outrageous or emotional at the time and it doesn't allow you to take it back. You either put it out there or delete it. There's no way to like modify it or explain yeah. the rationale behind your tweet. So I kind of understood what he was saying, but it's like kind of difficult. I guess you would just have to email him. I've never thought of doing it, but I should. That's, that's a good idea to to put it into the universe.
1: Yeah. You never know. I would love yeah. to, uh, you know, like, uh, if he has the opportunity to, Uh, like sit in Honest Spaces or read uh, Saifedean or so so many other authors, I'd love to uh, hear or understand what his perspective is, like Bitcoin through his lens as well. Um, In the writing process, because you are uh, the editor at Satoshi's Journal and you have been encouraging us to, to start writing, um I've I've almost completed a draft of an article I wouldn't say it's an article because you know I mean I'm not a writer how do you within the writing process I should actually start by saying like what is your process
0: uh my process is kind of unique so and I've said this to Mary too on on a previous podcast for bit now but um you know one of my Well, there's a couple books, but there's one book by Stephen King called On Writing. And that was kind of a book breaking down like how he fostered his ideas as a writer, his humble beginnings, and like what keeps him motivated to write, right? So when I first started writing in twenty fifteen, like on a freelance level, I've always been writing as a kid in in high school and in college, but um, once I started to really take writing seriously. I had like a weird process. So when I first started, writing had to be inspirational for me. I had to be motivated and passionate to write about something, right? And then as it became like kind of like rudimentary and kind of like just doing it from a place of like, okay, I have three articles I want to release this month. What I do is is that I kind of foster an understanding of like, how do I articulate this in the best way? So Mm -hmm. I have like a template. I'll have like um, beginning, middle, end, Um, introduction. What do I want to talk about? Give people a synopsis, give three main points, and then wrap up the article. So for me, that's like the easiest template. People have different ways of doing it. And a lot of times I'll just write. I won't worry about editing. I won't worry about grammar because people get hung up on, oh, this word doesn't sound right, or this cadence isn't right, or this pronunciation isn't right. Yeah. Yep. So just write it like Stephen King's model is just write it and then you edit after. The editor is always right is what he always says. So um, a lot of people have like side editors and they have like a really good relationship with their editor. Um, For me, I both write and edit my own stuff. Sometimes I'll have someone proofread it for me, but I think that that's made me a better writer because I have to kind of critique my own work. And what I'll do is I'll write something and I'll leave it alone for like a day or two so that I like get it out of my subconscious. And then I'll go back to it and say, oh, I didn't catch this. I didn't notice this. Let's modify that.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, So like that, that breather of one day or two, like permits you to take a step back. When you come back to it, are you more objective? Do you uh, like see holes in your argument, in your argumentation? Or like, if you're like emotionally motivated by the story you're telling, do you still sort of like stay on that same on that same track of saying, yes, it's this, it's this,
0: it's this. Yeah, it depends. It depends on what I'm talking about and writing about. But, um, and it also depends on what kind of impact I'm trying to give for the article, right? Yeah. So like if it's, if it's something based around race or politics or, you know, social issues in our society, sometimes writing things that are going to catch people's attention might be beneficial. And beneficial in the sense that you want people to be, like motivated to read more and see like what other gems are inside of that piece yeah. so a lot of times you know the first set of paragraphs in the article might be really things that are going to get people to say like whoa, what is this guy talking about and then what's like controversial it, or not even really controversial but kind of like a little shock like what, what, what's this about you know like or posing a question a lot of times you'll start an article hmm. posing a question to the audience And then they want to, they want an answer. So they have to continue to read it.
1: Yeah. 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 I actually, that's a technique that I employed, not because um, I thought that it would sort of like get engagement, but simply because (laughs) it's a legit question. Like the other thing too, um, in this process of trying to put out an article is that I realize that I'm not sure of anything, and I've always had the impression that writers are authorities, so if you are giving advice to someone who's never written before, and they are hesitant because they're not sure, and maybe, like, struggling with the right word is more symptomatic of just, like, am I talking, like, ish, or is this legit, how do how do they overcome that sort of like that I guess lack of confidence or uncertainty?
0: Um, you know what's interesting? Like I always talk about being a bookworm and kind of like being really big into reading, and I found that the more that I read, the better writer I've become. Yeah. But there's definitely like a model that I always tell people, which is the KISS method. Keep it simple, stupid. And yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, like when you're writing, like people want to use all these big words. They want to be adroit. They want to have like the most professional looking story that they want to tell. And it's just like anything else. It's like it's like training yourself or, or building muscle. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. When you
0: first go in the gym, you're not going to be able to just lift the most weights. It takes time. So I think when you're writing from yeah. a rudimentary standard or a basic standard just write in the grasp and in the width that you can write in and as time goes on the more you read the more you write you'll just become a better writer.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it and the discipline required to try to write something consistently. I've yeah. um I enjoy reading and I've always written in my journal. But I find that there's so much safety in that, because I don't expect anyone to ever read it. Uh, yeah. But as soon as I consider like, oh, someone could read this, I'm like, oh, <laughs> is what I'm saying yeah. offensive. But I think that speaks more to my personality than like the actual process of writing, like just wanting to get things good, I guess, or good enough for you to say, okay, Saida, we can publish this.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and, and, and Frank thought the same thing, right? Like, Mm. she didn't think that the stuff she was writing about would would impact the world, you know, in her diary, you know, so.
1: Yeah, so true. So true. So true. So um, related to writing, but um, more related to something you mentioned earlier about writing things that touch on race, for example, Do you think that with time, um, so not immediately, but with time, the adoption of a Bitcoin standard could change the way we view race and social hierarchies and some of the other social issues that we're seeing a lot of today?
0: Yeah, um, and I'm glad you asked this question. This is like one of my favorite questions that I saw that you had. Um, I think that, you know, Bitcoin is going to change the world and it's going to change the way humanity looks at money. There's a book called The Iceman Inheritance by Michael Bradley. I highly recommend people grab this book. And it kind of talks about, you know, social division, supremacy, some of these things that we see in our society and why that is, why certain races or demographics want to rule and control other ones or use social division to kind of keep other people at bay or keep people unified. Um, Bitcoin is unique in the sense where it is a paradigm shifting technology, mm-hmm. and the first thing that it's changing is money and how we transact peer to peer. So when, when people think about peer to peer transactions, they're thinking just money or monetary. But no, peer to peer can be information, it can be mm-hmm. culture, it can be art, it can be all of these things boiled into one. And I think that as time progresses, we'll start to see a dissolution of um, incentives because the incentives behind things is why I think there's a lot of social division in society right now. So Mm. people are doing things because they know that there's some type of monetary gain or social currency or a way for them yeah, there's a way for them to be up in the more, the higher scale of the hierarchy of society. And I think that Bitcoin kind of levels the playing field and there's going to be less people talking about how much they pay for their Lamborghini or you know, what type of house they live in because money will be subjective. It'll be like art. It'll be, this Picasso was worth this because I believe it is so, right? Oh. Versus is that actual value of that art really worth what it what people say it is. So Bitcoin is going to remove that fiat standard that, you know, that propped up, overprinted, manipulated price range is going to come back down to like the true value of what something is and what that value does for other people and within our community.
1: Yeah. Based on a limited supply cap, <clears throat> going back to scarcity, because if something is scarce and we're using that scarce thing as money, you're going to question whether you need to buy a third house or yep. whether yep. you need a super yacht or whether you need like, you know, the latest Chanel bag or Louis Vuitton or like Louis Vuitton's or whatever, like you're, those things will be called into question most definitely.
0: Yeah. So, and, and, and I'll qu- quickly side it onto that yeah. point too, not to cut you off. Yeah, um, Yeah, go ahead there's nothing wrong with having these things because people want nice things. But what I'm saying is that you'll get those things for you. Like you'll get that Louboutin because you like that Louboutin, not because you want to have a higher rank in society or you want people to notice you, you're just doing it because you thoroughly enjoy that product and you like the way that. Yeah. So like, I think that that's what I was trying to convey where people will buy things because they want to buy them, not because they want an incentive or they want some type of kudos from
1: society. Yeah, the social uh, trade-off. What? It's. Uh, um, I was going to say something, but I'm not going to say it because I've gone <laughs> through my shopping phase and I've got yeah. like uh, <laughs> a
0: we closet
1: full. Yeah, 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 totally. <clears throat> and for me personally, it's true that, ne- yeah, I reconsider a lot of things like, what is the true value of this thing? And when I say the latest, if you have one or two or a few, you're going to be like, well, you know, I really don't need the latest really. And I don't need yes. to tell people what I have or whatever, because it's for me. And I guess yep, motherhood exactly. coming into it too, is like, <laughs> it's like yep. another level of re-questioning your priorities and stuff. Yep. And okay. So this, what I'm going to say, I think is pretty controversial. Um, I don't know this to be true, but it is my belief that the concept of race as we know it today is a side effect of the the enslavement of africans and it sort of continues in order to sort of easily or from a physical perspective divide people do you think that this concept of i guess race and class sometimes are highly correlated do you think that that could change on a bitcoin standard
0: uh, yes yes i do i think that you know like when you go back into the history right like you had the homestead act of 1862 which kind of gave acres of land to people that were already well off even mm-hmm. though africans were still enslaved in this country and weren't freed and liberated till 1865 so you got to think about those 3 years of like a 3 year head start right so i think mm-hmm. that with bitcoin it levels the playing field where no one's ahead of anyone no one's below anyone everyone is starting at the same point and you get the price that you deserve so if you you don't understand bitcoin right now And it takes you five years to be orange-pilled. Whatever the price of Bitcoin is in those five years is the price that uh, you deserve. So I think that with Bitcoin and the Bitcoin standard and kind of people being on a sound money train, it -hmm. allows people to kind of be more legitimized in commerce, supply and demand, products, services, everything. Because if you're being paid in satoshis versus being paid in dollars, you know that those satoshis are backed by limited supply. You know, uh-huh. no capitulation, you know, things that are kind of like, you know, sound secure code run through electricity. So it's like the U.S. dollar or the euro or the British pound, all these things have been propped up and overprinted. So it kind of it removes that trust. And what Bitcoin does is it it kind of brings trust back into currency. So people have to realize that the Bitcoin standard is like a growing pain and yeah. over time. Yeah. So over time, people are going to really try to find a way to like optimize who they are and what they're using and what they're putting their value into.
1: Yeah. One idea that um, that comes back to me often is in reading um, Safety Namus, both the Bitcoin standard and the fiat standard and also Murray Rothbart. And the idea that on a sound money um, standard, specialization becomes a real thing like there's value in specialization which then leads to trade with other people trade being a form of communication and trade being a means by which people can actually get along like it's actually quite inclusive because if I'm trading with you even though we live in different countries or there are differences between us you specialize in one area I specialize in another it's in both of our interests to find a way to get along to find a way to exchange it's in our community's interest for this to happen so it's no longer beneficial to say like I don't know I don't know you're like living in whatever state you live in and I don't like people from that state so you know
0: yeah and you know like I think barriers stifle innovation right yeah and I think that like the lightning network for example that opens up so many opportunities because I can send you 200 bucks or 100 bucks in bitcoin and you'll get it in a matter of seconds or minutes versus traditionally you have to like especially if you're like in europe or other countries now there's like a five to seven day wire transaction there's a fee they want to know your address your name you know what you're doing why you're sending this money it's just so much red tape behind it and it just kind of it turns people off or it can be off-putting because you're like, I just want to send side a hundred bucks. I don't want to be interrogated. (laughs) You know what I mean? So like, I think that Bitcoin kind of opens up the door for that because if you really feel inspired by somebody's work or what they're doing in the space or even just being a good Samaritan, right? I just want to just donate or promote someone's lifestyle or what they're doing in the space. And I want to just send them money. We should be able to do that free or at a very low cost pair to pair. And that's what Bitcoin allows people to do.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, So I think I asked you this before, but but I'm going to ask you again. Uh, Have you orange pill people in your family? And how do they react when you speak about Bitcoin?
0: Yeah, good question. You know, the person that I orange pilled, which is my mom was like the most difficult person to orange pill. And like, I kind of she's still like kind of on the fence but she understands the protocol and like my mom's from the Caribbean so like she's very like I'm first generation
1: time out time out time out. I thought your family was uh from Ghana
0: my dad's from Ghana
1: and your mom is from I'm sorry for interrupting your story we'll revert but I want to jump on this where's your mom from
0: my mom's from Barbados
1: oh wow so you're Bayesian. you like soca or
0: oh everything of course I used to live down there. So I grew up down there a little bit too. So definitely.
1: For how long were you there in Barbados?
0: Um, I mean, I was born in America, but I lived in Barbados for four years and then I would go back and forth every summer. So like most of my family on my mom's side still lives down there. Nice. Yeah, I have like a huge connection with the Caribbean, with Africa. So that's why I'm also able to write about the way I can write because I've been able to see it from all three spectrums, from American, Black American aspect, African aspect and the Caribbean aspect.
1: Respect, respect. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So you orange-pilled your mom?
0: Yeah, so I orange-pilled my mom. Like, I kind of like, it took me a long time to, like, she, she's just, like, so trusting, or at least she was so trusting in, like, the typical banking system because, you know, coming here in the 90s during the Clinton era, everybody had good jobs. Money was flowing. Yeah. So she's, like, from that generation. So for me to talk about a cryptocurrency that's it's on her phone and you got to use, you know, a ledger. And she's like, what are you talking about?
1: So I kind (laughs) of like,
0: now I presented like my writing to her. I'm like, Hey, these are like the basic things about Bitcoin. Read it. If you like it, if you have any questions, let me know. So she reads it, she reads it and she has like tons of questions. Right. And I'm like, I'll do you one better. I'll set up a wallet for you and I'll send you $10 in Bitcoin. So you know, with Caribbean people, you got to like show them the money first.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so she's like, oh, this, and she's like, she's expecting this thing to take two hours for me to send her this $10. And she literally got a ping on her phone like in five minutes that I sent her some Bitcoin. And I was like, you see this $10, if you let this sit, and hold it over a long-term that $10 might turn into a hundred dollars. And she's like, Oh, now she, I got her ears listening now. <laughs> so, then, so then I'm like, I was like, you know what? I hit her with like the dollar cost averaging. I'll say, Hey mom, look, put it in $10 every week and just forget about it before you know it, there'll be tons of money in there. So I started her off with 10 and this is like when the all-time high hit. So she got crazy with it. She's like, oh, my goodness, I'm making so much money. She started putting in like hundreds of dollars, you know, in her dollar cost averaging. And then I was so proud because I was like, OK, if I can get this middle aged woman to to understand Bitcoin, you know, her coming from another country, being born in another country and trusting me that like I'm telling her as her oldest son, like, hey, this is going to change the world. This technology is going to allow you to retire and be able to be secure with your retirement and not have to worry about social security collapsing or medicaid collapsing these this can be your your safety egg so i was proud about that
1: nice and for your family living in barbados have they sort of started to catch on to uh to bitcoin or are they still kind of apprehensive
0: it's like you know i'm glad you asked that question like i'm kind of in the process of like trying to find a way to articulate bitcoin a little bit easier because like Mm. in the caribbean it's weird because they don't have, like, access to the applications we have, like, they also, that is true, yeah, they have the internet, but even, like, like, in Barbados, I don't know about other Caribbean islands, but, like, they don't have social security, they don't have, like, 401ks and stuff like that, like, all Mm. their investments is just, like, savings and cash, so how do we convert all this, like, hard cash in, like, I know in Barbados, like, it doubles, so, like, $10 in the U.S. is $20 in Barbados, yeah, so, it it kind of encourages them to like leave that country or get U S currency to double up their money. And you could use Bitcoin in the same way. So if I can find a way to get them to like, look at Bitcoin as like a savings protocol first, I think that Mm that would be a good way for people to really understand and use the the protocol.
1: Yeah. You know, what you say is um, with respect to having access to apps and stuff, Um, one of my oldest friends, we like, we went to, I think we met in like junior high or something, um, in Scarborough in Toronto. Um, she moved to St. Kitts and Nevis. Um, I moved to Switzerland and I'm always like Michelle, Bitcoin, 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 you know, and I'm always sending her different things and whatever, and like different types of wallets or Mary told me about an app. I forgot the name, but basically, for all the steps you take, they award you Satoshis. You can spin the wheel. Like, it's a cool way if you don't want, if you don't know about Bitcoin and you want to get a few Satoshis, like very a very, very small amount, just to like get your skin in the game, it's a pretty cool way to start because it's on your phone if you've got an iWatch or whatever, like it tracks your steps and it awards you Satoshis. So I'm like, try this, Michelle, you know? And she's like, it's not available where I am.
0: Yep. That's that's why I like like, you know, like there's there's a lot of apps out there that are I think they're trying to get into these places, but there's just so much red tape. There's so much like, you know, they don't I don't think that they the KYC stuff is what is kind of like hindering it, because even though a lot of these digital wallets and applications are good and they allow you to like adopt Bitcoin, there's still like a little bit of centralization there where they still want to know, like, kyc stuff and i think that that's kind of what's slowing down adoption in like the caribbean and africa even like you know south asian countries too Mm -hmm. and um i think as time goes on and like that's why i said like the the lightning network is going to kind of transmute all that stuff because it's going to become like ubiquitous like you're going to have it on cash app you're going to have it on paypal you're going to have it on some of these other applications that are global so yeah
1: it's um it's weird Because um, while, like, this application isn't available in St. Kitts and Nevis, Roger Ver and Bitcoin Cash have just, like, colonized the place. Like, she sent me a few pictures, and she's like, why is Bcash here? Like, I don't understand. You're telling me about Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin Cash? Like, why are they present? And I actually, like, I did a little googling to like figure out well try to understand what's happening and apparently he has it's on wikipedia this is public so i can say it he has a citizenship in saint kitts and nevis so then i'm like oh maybe he bought it maybe with the citizenship he bought something else like it's just it's it's weird
0: yeah i mean you've got you probably got to look into it like you know like people move to these places like is it a tax haven yeah. Like there's a lot of like different incentives. Like I said, once again, incentives. Mm-hmm. So he's probably realizing like, okay, this is an untapped market. People aren't really super educated on Bitcoin blockchain technology. This might be like a good play for me to come in and kind of like get people to kind of onboard onto yeah. what I have going on. So that happens.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you're in the Caribbean or uh, someone approaches you with B, uh, with Bcash cash. Read The Block Size Wars to understand what went down, why there was a chain split, and from there, make a decision.
0: Yeah, for sure. Make a decision.
1: Make a decision. You are very international. So have you traveled to Ghana as well?
0: Yep. I've been to... See, the lucky thing for me is that like, when I was a kid, I got to travel a whole lot. Nice. So like, I've been to Canada, I've been to Europe, I've been to... Um, the Caribbean, all over the Caribbean, Um, even South America, a little bit of places in South America too. So yeah, like I want to do more traveling, but of course it's, you know, when you have kids and stuff, it gets more expensive, but um, traveling for me and being international has always really helped me with my writing too,
1: because you get
0: outside of your comfort zone, you get into a different perspective and just like energetically places are different too. Like when I wrote, when I wrote my second book, Cover Me in Gold, which was a, pretty much like I was writing about gold as a store of value. This was like in my early pre orange pill days, like deciphering, like getting off that gold bug mentality into Bitcoin mm-hmm. um, for me for me to truly get off of the gold standard. I had to write everything about it, the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. So in in that journey, I was able to like travel to Mexico, travel to you know africa travel to these places to see where this gold is being sourced from and yeah. how it's beneficial or not beneficial for society
1: wow so what is your story with respect to money not just bitcoin because you mentioned gold as well and it's not common for people for younger people i would say in my experience at least to mm. even be into gold to begin with
0: Yeah, so how I got into gold was because, um, you know, when I first got out of college, I started working for the big banks, right? So I first worked at JPMorgan Chase, did that for a year, and then I moved to State Street Bank. And I was like a financial banker. I did mutual funds, hedge funds. So, you know, the guys and the gals that I was around at that time was like my mentors, you know, VPs and big bank hedge fund managers you know, their store value, their go-to, like if things got really bad in a derivatives market was always to go to gold. Like, Mm -hmm. so I was kind of like, that was ingrained into my mentality from a young age or in my early twenties at least. And, you know, cash was like a liquid asset, right? It was something that you could transfer very quickly, but if the central bank or the Fed decides to change an interest rate or the value of the purchasing power goes down, that cash can be liquefied, so that's when you go to gold, so for me, um, what kind of got me off of gold was um, a couple things, storing it, um, ease of use, ease of like, you know, portability, and being able to say like, let's say, God forbid, I had to flee, right, flee the country, flee like you can't bring three gold bars with you through the airport. You're going to get questioned. People are going to, you know, it's going to go off when you go through the, the the metal detectors. So it's like gold for me. And also it draws attention too. like if you're wearing a lot of gold, it just draws attention to you. Like people want to see, like, are you a rapper? Like, what do you, you know what I mean? So like, mm-hmm. it, it, it's one of those things where you want your money and your store of value to kind of be low key. And like, you don't want people to really be in your business. And I found that Bitcoin was great for that because you don't have to, you could be a millionaire in Bitcoin and no one would ever know, you know what I'm saying? Especially if you're not a flashy or an ostentatious person. So uh, for me, it was like, I wanted to find something that would outlast, you know, me and like, so that my daughter can have something and maybe even her heirs could have something. And it's like, when you look at a protocol, that's not going to be, you know, finally mined till 2140, you got to think like, that's a good 100 years from now. And it's like, even if the price doesn't go where people think it's going to go, um, things change or they lose the number one spot as like the number one market cap for cryptocurrency, you at least know that this protocol is going to be around where you have yeah. developers and engineers having the ability to have a second winner to recode it for at least 100 years. And that gives me um, hope because I know that you know with time, things changes, but with time, things can also get better.
1: Yeah. You know, um, I think it was a few years ago, uh, sometimes in Switzerland, like these random articles pop up and there was someone transporting gold bars uh, on the train Yep. and they like either forgot them, lost them or something. And like, there you go.
0: That's crazy. And they're heavy too. They're heavy. It's like, you know, like I think that and also like the gold market, like in my book, I talk about Fort Knox. And I talk about how there hasn't been an audit at Fort Knox since, I don't know, 1970 something. So it's like, that means that there's been no one actually going into that facility and actually counting if there's the amount of bars of gold in there. So like, for all we know, there's no gold in there. For all we know, there's 10 pieces of gold in there. It's like, that's just dangerous because that's kind of like our store of value for the country, right? And I'm sure for security reasons, they don't have audits, but to make it like peace of mind for the public I feel like the public should have the ability to have that be transparent and obviously you know I don't work in government so I don't know how the whole you know you know documentation process works but that kind of like made me go like oh like even like working in the bank I didn't really dig into like Fort Knox and understanding that till I wrote my book. And I'm like, wait, there hasn't been an audit in 30 something, 40 something years. Like, how can we prove that that's there versus like, that was like yeah. where the proof of work thing came from me. So, yeah.
1: So where does the confidence in gold come from? Because uh, my dad is, is big on gold. He, <laughs> my, from Trinidad. Oh yeah, uh, they love
0: it. They love so
1: it. I always have like, Cash under your bed, a few gold bars and a few silver bars i've never done that, um, but he's he 's big on gold, and i 've never purchased gold bars, and so I have no idea that like just as an ignorant person like me, if I wanted to and I went to a dealer, how would I verify that the entire bar is solid gold, like do I melt it down myself? How do I know? Or if I don't actually go and physically purchase gold, how do I know that any certificate that's issued to me actually has gold bars that belong to me backing it?
0: Yeah, 100 percent. First off, I'll say gold certificates are dangerous because there's just no way for you to verify or know unless you're gonna like you're gonna withdraw or ask them to like hey give me this gold that I have on this gold certificate. It takes time, it's a it's a lot of paperwork. It's just a huge endeavor. Um, to your second to you know the second question to answer that, um, a lot of people what they do is they get a, a SAID gold a s s a y e d, which oh. is it has a it has a stamp on it so it has like a brand in it where it will say like. pure gold and then there's like things you can go to jewelers you can go to pawn shops and they can test it they can scratch off a piece of the gold you know put a a chemical on it and then they can tell them the purity of the bar or the purity of the gold that you have it's a process it's like kind of like convoluted it's like expensive and that's why like i kind of like bitcoin better because you know that every block every transaction coming off the protocol from the miner is legit Bitcoin. Like there's mm-hmm. no like fake Bitcoin, right? <laughs> there's a lot of fake gold out there. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, and um, to your point too, when you're talking about your dad and um like really believing in gold, you you know, Trinidad actually has their own gold mine. A lot of people don't realize that, but there's a, their own gold mine in Trinidad. But um, I think that it just goes back to like that old school mentality and also yeah. gold being a store of value for thousands of years. So people just go yeah. with the tried and true that they've always gone with. And, um you know, God forbid if he has to liquidate that gold, it's hard too because he might want to buy some apples or a mango and he might not want to sell his whole entire gold bar for those two mangoes. There's no way for you to divide up yep. unless you're going to cut a piece off your gold. You know, it's just harder to <laughs>
1: with the <rock>. fractionalize
0: it. <laughs> exactly. So it's like in those moments, you, you don't think about that. But, like, God forbid if he had to, like, if all of his savings is in one one ounce gold bar or a 10 ounce gold bar. There's no way for him to kind of break off pieces of it for him to just buy something small. It's like, he's going to be forced to buy like a huge purchase or lose all of his gold for something small.
1: Yeah. He's into Bitcoin as well though. And actually he uh, first was like, Hey, what's this Bitcoin thing like before me? So he's uh, he's on it, but I think for him, it's like, it's his legacy mindset as well. Um, And I think in the short to medium term, there is still a value across time in holding on to a little bit of gold, but he's more and more going into Bitcoin. He's uh, My dad's like, I have to say, I have such strong role models in my parents. And I think that part of the reason I wasn't intimidated to start learning about Bitcoin is because of the way I was raised and like you my father has um is um creative like he's expressive he uh produces music he taught english uh theater as well and he's had so many different experiences in different countries and i think that even though it's not based in tech those things somehow help people to grasp the potential of bitcoin
0: yeah for sure and i, I also think that you know like People are gonna choose what they want to choose as a store of value, and you know you just have to kind of be patient with them. And of course, like you know, it doesn't hurt to have some gold. It doesn't hurt to have some silver because you never know what could happen, right? The internet could get shut down, even though it wouldn't affect Bitcoin. But yeah. you know, until things come back online, you might have to do barter. You might have to do typical peer-to-peer. Just you know, give me ten tomatoes, I give you a piece of silver. You know that yeah. might have happen. You never know. But um, I I will say this, though, I think that gold is really good for jewelry. I think that gold becomes, it's going to become more of like art and subjective, where, you know, there's pieces that are like heirlooms, like you you have a daughter, like you might have some really unique gold pieces that you want to pass down to her. And that's going to still keep value because it's sentimental. So I think that that's going to still be a good use case for gold. And I think that gold will always hold value. It's just not going to be as useful in the future as it is right now.
1: Yeah, totally it's um <clears throat> your experiences um working in finance remind me of um, when I was working in oil and gas I used to um, amongst other things order drill bits, so it's just the piece that's used to whatever and I remember like looking at uh like the different uh, range of products in the price list, and I saw diamond cutters, and I was like, oh, and then I was like, it is true, there is an abundance of diamonds like the price is inflated because producers work very hard on controlling the supply or the available supply on the market. And then we have a lot of marketing and a lot of fantasy and like, you know, the status or the the messages you're sending if you're a woman and your husband or your boyfriend proposes, like all of these things come into play. But that for me was another aha moment that made me question the, the, the assumptions I had with respect to value. What is true value? Yeah, hundred
0: percent. And there's also a lot of fake diamonds out there. There's a lot of conflict yeah. diamonds out there. Yeah. So it's all like manipulation, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I think that people are going to realize, like, Bitcoin. Like, you know, people are going to have their qualms about Bitcoin, but like, they're going to know, like, if there's any quote-unquote fake Bitcoin, the protocol is not going to allow that Bitcoin to transact. There's going to be a rejection on the Bitcoin protocol.
1: Yeah, your are block will be them. rejected. Yeah,
0: exactly. So like, and that's kind of running on its own. That's like built into the system. It's, you know, it's, it's not a part of it. It's just like how it all operates. Like that's the DNA of Bitcoin. So it's like, you know, at least on that front, like you're going to get exactly what it says it is.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So do you have any resources that you point uh, new people to when they first start asking about Bitcoin?
0: Yeah. Um, the first, you know, and it's weird too, because like I, this changed, like this changes for me, like from month to month or every few months. So like when I first started really orange peeling people, I would tell people like um, to get like the little Bitcoin book, like very short read, doesn't take long, gives you like a quick breakdown. After you finish that, then you get into like the Bitcoin standard. Because I just think that, Safe Dean kind of breaks down, like, what is money? What is the store of value? You know, what is, you know, you know, a universal token that you could use, like, he breaks down all these things. And then he starts to get into Bitcoin, right? The Protocol, blockchain, all that stuff. Um, Now, as I've kind of become like more experienced in the space, there's just so many freaking uh, ways for you to learn about Bitcoin. So like, shout out to my brother, Mark Stephanie, he has um a podcast called the progressive bitcoiner and it's also a website and he Mm -hmm. has a resource he has a resources page on there and that resources page has everything from racial injustice women's rights energy everything that you could think of in in conjunction with bitcoin and that's been kind of like a big go-to for me um bitcoin magazine has tons of articles you can read i have tons of articles you can read on my medium account on my website and it's like you can just learn from all different people from all different yeah. walks of life and uh you know the internet is is big and open so you can learn from everywhere.
1: Yeah, it's I find now so when I started um learning about bitcoin there was still so I didn't know enough to filter through bitcoin and blockchain. At the time everything was about blockchain. Everything was like peer to peer blockchain. I think it was Vice or one of those um media outlets that had a woman sitting down and the whole exercise was to explain blockchain to like a little kid and then mm. someone older and someone older and someone experienced and i i think at one point they were talking about like solar panels on vehicles and the blockchain and whatever and i like i was so like i, I don't get why on the one hand I hear about Bitcoin because I used to listen to I yeah I used to listen to the Kaiser report all the time mm-hmm. and I've never heard any mention about uh, like cars moving on the blockchain kind of thing you know and then on the other hand you know there's such a world of information out there that's only speaking about blockchain or some of the other coins in the market and so like it took me a while to say oh okay I get it like because there is a lot of information available.
0: Yeah. Are you, are you talking about like the traffic thing? Because I know the blockchain thing, they talk about like how it could be like represented for traffic and like freeing up traffic. Is that the thing you're talking about? With cars? Uh, I, uh,
1: maybe I have to, because I haven't seen it in a long time. I'll send you the link, but I think it was more along the lines of maybe generating energy somehow and recording that energy or something with cars. Maybe. Yeah. It's very confusing for someone who's relatively new. And also, I didn't have the benefit of uh, knowing too many real like I don't want to say Bitcoin Maxi because that term seems to be loaded. I personally see Bitcoin maximalism as boundaries. It's Bitcoin you know you're not endorsing any other cryptocurrency it's really about bitcoin and i think for me for example when i was starting out that helped to that helped me to focus and to understand cool. what is money and to to like to figure that out if i think that for some reason i had been exposed more to people in the altcoin markets and whatever or or like here, I know a few people who are very much into other things. I can kind of sense what kind of personality they have, and so I'm like, yeah, maybe no, that's not for me. But um, but had it not been for Bitcoin maximalism, I think that I may have been led astray at some point.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And I kind of like follow the model of Lamar Wilson, who's like the founder of BBB, and he yeah. calls himself a freedom maximalist, yeah. and I kind of like believe that, like. You're free to do and choose whatever you want, but I'm going for the protocol for the digital asset that's going to allow me to have the most freedom and that's Bitcoin. So mm. that, yeah, that's the way I look at it.
1: Yeah. And by freedom, what do you mean by that? Cause that term is interpreted in so many different ways.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like I, when I, when I say freedom, I'm talking about free to be able to transact, create, innovate, um, you know, on my own accord. So like Mm -hmm. Bitcoin, is going to allow people to kind of like layer on top of what they're already doing. So like, let's say I'm a artist or I'm a painter and, you know, I don't want my work to be diluted by someone not giving me a price that I feel is fair for my art. I can place this art in satoshis and whatever the amount of satoshis I put in it, let's say it's 20,000 satoshis for my art piece. I know if I understand Bitcoin well, and I'm well-versed in it, I know that if that person pays 20,000 satoshis for this, this art right now, it's going to increase in value over time. It's like real estate. It's going to just continue to get more and more valuable. So yeah. the price I'm getting now is going to increase over time, which is going to keep my art at a higher value. And I think that that's freedom. That's freedom mm-hmm. to express yourself truly, um, the embodiment of freedom, because you're using your God-given talents, and you're being paid and not only paid for it, but that that value was being increased over time without being, you know, kind of controlled or subjected by the person purchasing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. It is freedom. I've, um, I think because I'm sort of naturally inclined towards social issues, I've mm-hmm. uh, lately I've really been going down the how can Bitcoin change certain dynamics sort of rabbit hole. And in preparing the article, um, I'm learning a lot about the French uh, CFA system. Mm -hmm. And so in the US, um, a lot of sort of laws, and you referenced something from 1835, I think, where certain people, 62, were given uh, land Mm -hmm. in um, West African countries that use the CFA. That monetary control that France has on those on people in those countries and those governments is still in place today. and from a social perspective, so I'm you know born and raised in Toronto, my family's from Trinidad and Tobago, English is my first language. I learned French, whatever. My story, my history is much different than most I would say uh, French speaking Africans. And it's so weird that for me, living in a Francophone environment, I feel a lot of that sort of energy and that history on me, even though it's not part of my historical identity, it's becoming part of my identity today because I've been here for so long. But in terms of like Bitcoin and promoting social change and the way we interact with each other, I keep asking myself, like, if it were employed, maybe by the Central African Republic, but by other countries that use the CFA system, would there be this level of, dare I say, arrogance that some French people project onto people with dark skin? Would there be a sense of like, oh, maybe I should get to know you and what you do, and perhaps we can engage in trade. And there's a more amiable type of relationship as opposed to like, you know, what are your origins? Where are you from? Where are you really from? You know, like the line of questioning that, uh, that I can receive it from time to time.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, I think a lot of these countries, they're still paying like colonial tax, you know, like from you know, when they were still colonizing Africa and breaking it up, like, you know, like my dad would talk to me about Africa and a lot of the history of Africa, which was unique and interesting because a lot of people of color don't get that part of history. They have to read it in books or it has to be passed down, like, you know, just do like conversation. So, you know, there was a point when Africa didn't have like Togo, Benin, Nigeria. It wasn't all Mm -hmm. carved out like that. It was just one big continent and it was tribal and people kind of like were nomadic and moved around or they stayed in a certain place and just called that place home. When the Europeans came in, they carved it out. So like the Belgians, the Dutch, the French, the English, you know, they all like carved out their own little places to kind of like monetize off of it. And I think that France was a big player in that, of course, as we know. And I think that um, they understand how much, innovation is there how much natural resources are there and i think that as time goes on these african countries are starting to wake up and realize like okay enough is enough like we don't want to have to pay you a tax just to operate in our own countries you know mm-hmm. we're already using your language we're already using a lot of your customs now it's like we have to use your money and pay you as well so i think that you know in africa's a unique place too because there's a lot of corruption and you know there's just It's a lot of like red tape that people have to get around, but Mm -hmm. I think that like car in Nigeria are being beacons for Bitcoin right now because the inflation rate is so crazy in those countries currency debasement is so crazy in those countries and Bitcoin is kind of giving people another option to opt out of colonial tax and some of the control that the French have and I think that it's a growing pain and it's going to take time but hopefully um, more people adopt it more people realize that they can use it at the marketplace and they can use it you know to buy homes to purchase land and it's just a lot easier because you don't have an overlord or a central authority kind of telling you what you can and can't do.
1: Yeah it's um what I look forward to see to to seeing is um like different strategies that are being employed right now. Uh, I think it was in 2020 or 2021 <clears throat> where the president of Ghana, sorry, <clears throat> there's a lot of dust. The president of Ghana uh, said that Ghana would stop selling uh, cocoa to one of the big, large um, chocolate producers and that yeah. Ghana would pivot and start Um, producing chocolate and selling the finished good itself Um, and Ghana seems to be uh, aggressively recruiting uh, people of African descent who are educated they're offering um, citizenship I think Mm -hmm. and yeah they're on a path to actually try to build Without necessarily speaking about Bitcoin, um, I think in Ghana, they do have their own currency already. So they don't have the same types of restraints that some countries in uh, the CFA region have. So on the one hand, that's what Ghana is doing. And it would seem that in Nigeria, there seems to be more of a grassroots movement. It's coming from the bottom where people are really uh, using Bitcoin because they're There's like the need for it is so completely clear. So and then there's the Central African Republic whose president said officially, you know, Bitcoin will be legal tender even though he seems to be talking about the Sango coin based on gold or something like that right now, but between those three countries, I'm fascinated to see how things develop over the next five and 10 years. Like will, will the, the, the strategy in Ghana be prove successful? I think there's actually a Bitcoin conference coming up in Ghana. So will they include Bitcoin into their strategy? Will like the grassroots movement in Nigeria be the dominant, uh, Strategy in this case, because it really comes from the people and it's not imposed by the government. Or like, well, the CAR between Bitcoin and their Sango Coin, like, will they sort of escape the, the the colonial clutches?
0: Yeah, I think that there, I think that there's just a lot of observation going on right now in Africa, and I think that Nigeria and CAR are like kind of like the 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 experiment right now. So mm-hmm. like I think other countries are kind of seeing like how it goes and if it's actually going to be beneficial and then some other countries will start to adopt. But I actually had a conversation with Heritage Faladun. Yeah. Um, he's kind of like really big in the space boots on the ground in Nigeria. He told me that they Nigeria actually has a CBDC already, but it's optional. Oh. So like they yeah they give you the option to use it or not use it. It's not really big, like the NARA is still kind of like the de facto universal currency there, but they have like three things. They have the NARA, they have a CBDC, and then they have Bitcoin. So it's kind of like this jostling of like, who's going to be number one? And there's just so many people, uh, Abu Bakar, Heritage, Charlene Federico that there's tons of people that are Nigerian or from Nigerian descent that's really trying to push Bitcoin and make it like the de facto currency in the country. And hopefully, you know, Bitcoin wins. But, you know, a lot of these African countries have all these different Ponzi schemes and people trying to come in and trying to like utilize and take advantage of people in those countries that don't know a lot about technology don't know a lot about stores of value. So, you know, it's a learning curve and people will get there eventually. And um, I have a lot of high hope for, for Africa as a, as a whole.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like that's part of the learning curve trend touch wood. I've never, I shouldn't even say it, but it seems as though many people on their journeys fall into some type of Ponzi scheme or they get rug pulled in some way or like, for like the ogs like they had their bitcoin on exchange with mount gox or something like Mm -hmm. it just seems like part of the learning curve hence the, i think it's uh rohan smith who said only buy buy as much as you understand so to speak so that you're not totally like you know converting your entire retirement savings into bitcoin in one go without fully understanding how to self-custody and how to manage
0: yeah and also like just like the way economics is run like even if you do understand Bitcoin completely, like I think we both do, um, things get in the way, life gets in the way. Like you can't just go and spend a grand or two grand on Bitcoin like you would want to because you have other responsibilities. Yeah, and your I think cash that flows. that's yeah. yeah, I think that that kind of like is the genius of Satoshi too because he or she, whoever it may be, a group of people, they've realized that, um, you know, there's a fixed supply, but they don't want people to have a monopoly. So like, it's going to be evenly distributed, whether you want it to or not, because not everyone's going to be able to buy as much as they want, even governments aren't going to be able to buy as much as they want, because the mining process is slow and only certain amount of Bitcoin come out, you know, after each halving so it like forces people to kind of like stay within their range. And -hmm. I think that that's genius as well, too.
1: It is Totally. Right, but and that said, like on uh, the demand side, because that's I, for me, this is where we see the fluctuations in price with yeah. uh, Luna and Celsius and blah, blah, blah. Like you're seeing a bunch of Bitcoin flooding the market because of these risky or risky these Ponzi schemes. Right. Yeah. Um, I lost my train of thought. What Was I going to say. Oh, you were talking about um
0: just like kind of the demand and like how it's being controlled through like the protocol.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is what, in my opinion, is really having an impact on the price, Uh, the market participants. So it could be regular people who just, you know, stack as much as they can and toddle. It could be people who have lofty goals of getting rich quickly and falling into (laughs) some staking platform that offers 20%, you know, like... (laughs) Um, these things have an impact on on the price. So for anyone that you've actually persuaded to get into Bitcoin, or like your mom who saw Bitcoin at 69K and then has seen the price drop, how do you explain these things to her so that she's not discouraged and she doesn't think that it's like some kind of scam?
0: Oh, trust me, trust me. My mom, she sends me texts. She calls me. She's like, the price is down. This is ridiculous. (laughs) I'm, I'm taking my money out. And I told her, I said, look, Don't look at the price. I said, the price is subjective. The price is um, a reflection of how people feel about Bitcoin right now. That's not the long term. I said, worry more about the amount of Bitcoin you have. How much Satoshi's do you have? That's the real representation of the value that that's going to be worth down the road. So are you a Satoshi millionaire? you have 10 million Satoshis, 100 million Satoshis. How much Satoshis do you have? That's going to be the real key basis that people need to realize. Like, The price is going to go up and down. It's a volatile asset right now. Any asset that's new and is designed to disrupt real estate, bonds, stocks, the derivative market, you're going to have volatility because you're trying to shake out the weak hands and you're also trying to um, allow people to really buy in at a high level. So you know, for people out there that are really concerned about price, you have to study a little bit more to realize that the price is subjective. The price is just how people feel. It's an emotional yeah. response to Bitcoin. Worry about how many Satoshis you actually have.
1: Yeah, that's so true. It's um like, I have to be totally um, open and honest. When I first got into Bitcoin, the thing that really said, oh my God, what is this thing? was the price? I mean, and I think that it's fair for most people to to have that like first and foremost, it's like, it's, it's almost like a honey trap, you know, Oh, the price. And then you get in and then you see like whatever, you know, Satoshi's you bought, you look at the, like the U S dollar value or the Swiss franc value or the euro value. And you see that there are fluctuations and your emotions kind of go like this. And then after a while, as you continue learning about it and you're, you continue studying, it's like the price is almost like, I don't check the price every day, all the time at all, because it's like, it's like, it turns into not as important in shorter periods of time. Yeah, for
0: sure. And you know, 60 to 80% downtrends are are common in this asset and people have to really like Michael Saylor says, like if you're not willing to buy into Bitcoin and sit on it for five to 10 years, don't even invest in it. And Mm you know, that's hard for people to do because people are looking at it from the aspect of like, get rich quick. And what they have to realize is like, in your country, for example, in Europe, the moment they, they make the announcement that, you know, this supermarket is accepting Bitcoin, this gas station is accepting Bitcoin, the price is going to shoot up because it's now going to be a circular economy. And what people have to realize is that we're just waiting. It's like a ticking time bomb. You're trying to accumulate as much as you can. So when you do have to spend it, you're not spending all of your Bitcoin. You have a nest egg, you have a savings. You have like something to the side where you can still allow the value of your Bitcoin to grow, but you can also use some of your Satoshis to do day-to-day peer-to-peer transactions over the Lightning Network. So my, my, my shout to the world is like, buy as much as you can or as much as you can afford and that you're willing to lose because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't have a crystal ball. But for the most part, I believe that it's going to be here to stay and that you want to have enough Bitcoin so that when they do start asking for it as payment, you don't run out of Bitcoin trying to just live your life on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah, it's um. So I, I often hear people saying, it might go to zero and it might not. If it doesn't, then uh, I don't, I mean, I I don't know, but I don't think it'll go to zero. And actually the Swiss post just made an announcement. It's uh, the post office also has a financial segment to its business. And they just made an an announcement saying that in 2024, they'll start offering Bitcoin to retail customers. And the value proposition they've put forth is that it can be intimidating and difficult to self custody. So we'll do that for you. This country is like, it's in the middle of Europe. It's teeny tiny. Everyone around us, the European Union, there's this Mika law going on, this whole introduction of hosted versus unhosted wallets. Everyone mm-hmm. is trying to regulate and dibble dabble and do whatever. And Switzerland's just like, okay, you know, we'll make it available to everyone. Oh, so many companies here that are, I have to say crypto-based because it's not just Bitcoin. Um come here in order to, to set up their businesses. They have access to banking services in a few cantons and stuff. It's just maybe Switzerland is like an experiment as well to see how things play out here. And based on the results, it'll be employed elsewhere.
0: Yeah. You know, you have a lot of Swiss gold in that country. So they're, they're, they've been backed by the gold standard for so long. And a lot of wealthy people store their value there, store their gold there Um, to your to your point about like keys versus no keys, I think people should have the option to do both. And I can hear JW, the weatherman, and some of the people on Twitter just yelling at me. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on, hold on. But I'm going to explain myself, right? Like I look at like my mom, for example, someone that's a baby boomer, someone that doesn't understand technology to a high level to Mm -hmm. self-custody, like I would have to do that for her, right? I think that there's going to be a a percentage of the population that's just going to do you know, custodial, they'll use CASA or something like that because they just don't trust themselves or they're just forgetful, right? So people are going to lose their keys, things like that. And I think that in the near term, that's what's going to be the case. I think over the long haul and people understand the real value of Bitcoin, that they're going to do their own self-custody. Me personally, I think that self-custody and having your own private keys is like number one thing to do but i don't think that everybody's going to agree with that and i don't think everyone's going to be able to do that Uh just because think about it when the baby boomers retire there's going to be millions of people coming in off off of retirement and there's going to be a wash of money coming into millennials gen xers that they have to figure out what to do with it a lot of that money might end up going into bitcoin but are they going to be able to self-custody all that do they understand that they have to keep their private keys secure do they understand that they could be rug pulled? They could be hacked. Like there's a lot of things that could happen in the future. And I think a lot of these companies are gonna kind of like jump in and try to um be like the quote unquote saviors for people, but scare people. Not yeah. The- yeah. They can get hacked too though. That's what they're not telling people.
1: <laughs> well, and this is the thing. And it's like, um, I'm probably gonna go off on a tangent, but then like it turns into what your priorities are in life. Okay, so time is a scarce resource. And for all the parents out there, we know that like, it ain't easy. And sometimes when you have a big day planned, your child or children wake up in the middle of the night, you have to get up, you're tired, like yep. time is, is not easy. And then the thing is, is that what do you do in your spare time, like a realistic, not sort of moral preachy perspective, but what do you do in your spare time? do you, I don't know, like, what do you do? Do you go out with friends? Do you uh, like watch Netflix or HBO or whatever? Do you go drinking? Do you smoke weed? Do you do a bit of everything? Like, how do you manage your spare time? And I think that if... If it were somehow cool to employ more of a low time preference lifestyle, where you could actually chill with your friends and you guys could talk about like self custody or whatever. Okay, I'm revealing how nerdy I really am. But for me. Like, this is this is kind of fun, you know, because it it's just, it's something fascinating. You're learning, you're actually doing something for yourself that'll, that you'll benefit from in the long run. You're doing things for your children. Like, to me, it's just like a win-win-win-win situation. But I think I'm like one of the only people who actually gets excited from, you know, like a self-custody party or something, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that there's going to be more of those self custody parties, because, like I said, it's going to be an option. I'm a freedom maximalist. So I think that if you want to self custody, self custody, if you want to yeah, fair. Take, take, take your life savings and the, the greatest digital asset known to man, you want to take that risk of letting someone else hold the private keys to that asset, that's going to be on you if something happens to that, or they get hacked. You're going to feel very sorry about yourself so it's like <laughs> yeah. As, yeah as a writer i try to <clears throat> write about these things and talk about private keys self-custody and why the, why that's important but at the end of the day people are going to do what they want to do and there's so much like backbiting and fighting over like no i want to self-custody versus i don't and i think that the og true bitcoiners that really understand the value of what bitcoin is yeah. they're always going to be self-custody such as myself <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. But and what you say is so important. You are a writer. And so to remain as objective as possible and uh, empathetic as well, you know, like putting yourself in the the shoes of your mom or some baby boomers is is very fair. I'm, I, I guess I have a tendency to be a little bit more dogmatic in my approach. Like, yeah. you know, if you don't know how to do it, cool, let's figure out how, you know, like, yeah. let's do it together kind of thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. And that's important. You know, I think that's very important. And I think that, um, you know, like Casa, I like Casa because they have multi-sig and it like doesn't put all of it on them. Like they have some of the private keys, you have some of the private keys, there's pins, you know, there's all these like different ways to do it. And You know, it's just like, wait till people start uh, being able to put, you know, Bitcoin on their 401k, like some companies are allowing you to do it, but like, wait till that's just like universal at every company. They're going to have to have some way of like storing these private keys or allowing you to have the option to do it. So as a writer, I think about that, like forward thinking, like, how can I elucidate, elucidate that to people down the road to say like, Hey, if you don't understand how to store your Bitcoin securely. Um, you're taking a risk, and that risk can involve A, B, C, D. So we'll get there.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. But it's a pleasure to hear your perspective on this because you, you present a very sound argument. Like no one can, say, no one can argue the contrary to what you're saying. Yeah. Awesome. So tell us again the names of your books.
0: Yes. Um, So I have a couple of books out. My first, first book that I ever wrote was called uh, Death of a Rose Rise of the Black Petunia, which was a poetry book and it was kind of breaking down. This is at the time of like Michael Brown and some of the police brutality that was going on in the country. I essentially wrote, uh, you know, poems about my experience being a young black male in my 20s going through and seeing these things. Um, My second book was a book I mentioned earlier in the podcast, which was Cover Me in Gold, where I kind of like went on this like writer's journey traveling and learning about gold and unique places and cultures and how gold has kind of like bolstered humanity as a store of value. Um, You can get that on Amazon, my website. My third book um, is a cryptocurrency blockchain book called The Bit on Digital Coins, an Introduction to Cryptocurrency and Blockchain Technology. And that's more of a blockchain heavy book. I talk about Bitcoin in it, but not as much. Um, I mainly talk about the protocol um, and blockchain technology. And my next book, which is coming out uh, hopefully this year, is called Stacking Sats as a New Black. And that's essentially um, me as a writer within the last year or two, kind of like being in the black Bitcoin billionaires, learning about Bitcoin and seeing how Bitcoin has changed the lives for African-Americans, not only in America, but throughout the diaspora. So um, that's going to be a great read and look out for that coming out soon.
1: Good stuff. When do you sleep or do you sleep?
0: Um, I try to optimize my sleep. Like I'm a parent, like I have, a, you know, my, my daughter's two years old. So like I try to squeeze in as much time as I can, but like also, I said this to Mary, too, on another podcast where, like, I'm weird because, like, if I have my moments, right, like, I'll have moments where for a month or two, I'm super inspired. And, like, I'll be, like, sleeping and I'll wake up and, like, put some notes on my phone. Like, like if I have an idea, I have to write it down or not. If yeah. I go to sleep and wake up, I'll forget it. So a lot of times, like, I'll have spur of the moment ideas where, I'm like, okay, I have to write this down so that, like, I can build off of it the next day. And then I'll have moments where... I'm not inspired or I have writer's block and I take that time to study. So when I have writer's block, I'll just like reread the Bitcoin standard or take like Bitcoin for everybody course again and just like refresh my mind and like reiterate like why Bitcoin is important and how I can use that to be a better writer. So I have my moments just like everybody else. I'm human.
1: Good for you. But I mean, you're putting in the work and we see the proof with your publications and the work you're doing uh, at Satoshi's Journal as well. So how can people find you on social media?
0: Yes, yeah, so um, I'm very active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is underscore Dadu. That's underscore D-A-W-D-U. Um, you can also find me through my website, which is www.imdaru.com iamdawdu.com. am um, I have all my blogs, articles, Bitcoin magazine pieces, um, stories, everything that I've ever done as far as a writer um, can be found on my website. So that's the good, those are good two places to find me online.
1: Nice. People have to check you out. I, I love, I love, like Mary as well. I love, your, like, I just love how diverse we are um in terms of like where our parents are from where we live the things we've seen the places we've traveled the languages we're exposed to the perspectives we're we're exposed to I mean for me this is 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 is, like it it is is such a, a richness that I mean you can't put money or satoshis or anything on it's just incredible I love it Yep. And
0: this is just the beginning. This is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many things that we have to unpack as a team that we haven't even begun to get into. And it's like, I think that this is what makes it so unique because when you look at the the, the core team of Satoshi's Journal, there are people from all walks of life. We have Hispanics, yeah. we have whites, we have blacks, Caribbeans, everything in, in on the team. And we all bring this under a Bitcoin standard as like trying to change the world and fix money, not for ourselves but for everybody and that's what it's all about is helping out each one teach one
1: each one teach one and you're encouraging us to tell our stories so thank you so much thank you i appreciate it thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed that episode and if you would like to share your bitcoin story check out satoshisjournal.com. Writers are compensated with a few thousand Satoshis for sharing their Bitcoin stories or any article about Bitcoin for that matter. Uh, You can stay connected with Daudu on Twitter. It's at underscore Daudu, D-A-W-D-U. Check out his website at www.iamdowdo.com. And of course, you can stay connected with me on Twitter at Saida Gomez, S-A-I-D-A-H-G-O-M-E-Z and at Foster Inclusion. On Instagram, you can follow me at Foster Inclusion and I've got a TikTok. (laughs) So you can follow me at Saida Gomez. Bye.